All right, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to sit here for a second, make sure we're good to go. Romans chapter 8. I think our internet's having some technical difficulties this morning. Romans chapter 8. All right. I'm going to pretend that we're live on the air, okay? <laughs> I'm going to go check here in a second. Right? Romans chapter 8. Now, you know we're looking at six key words. I know that we're in part, what, four, part five, and we haven't got to the actual six words, but there's a reason for that. So go to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to make sure we're live on the air really quick. Romans chapter 8. Make sure we're good to go. Here we go. Got six key words. There you go. That's me. All right. Verified. All right. The chat is open. All right. Thanks, Seth. Seth, let us know that we're good to go. All right. Romans chapter 8. First of all, let's identify the six words. What's the first word out of the six words that we're looking at? For no, someone just said. And where do we find that? Yeah, Romans 8.29. For whom he did for no. Second word? He also did predestinate. Third word? He called. Fourth word? Justified. Next? Glorified. Next, elect found in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. All right, those are the six words. Now, I decided not to just jump into those six words like most people do because everybody jumps straight into those six words because they're so controversial. And why are those six words so controversial? Because they deal with the subject of predestination and election. And you can't mention those words without a war breaking out in a church. In fact, if you were to mention these words in some churches, you will immediately end up in a church split. Even many churches who kind of say they lead, that they hold to that doctrine, sometimes in their teaching, they almost go against the very doctrine they claim to hold to because they don't want to cause a church split. So um, when we first moved here, we, there were, uh, we had churches who kind of said that they, they agreed with that doctrine, and then when you got there and listened to them preach, you're like, well, that's not in agreement with that doctrine. So what are you doing? Because everyone's afraid because it will cause a church split. So, how did I want to approach it? Instead of jumping into the controversy, I believe the controversy should have already come way before this. And there were two concepts. Everybody remember those two concepts. First, God subjected all of creation to what? To vanity, not according to the will of whom? Creation. What verse states that? Romans chapter 8, what verse? It's Romans 8.22. Verse 20, thank you. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Everybody see it? All right. Now, I'm not reading all of this to you because I'm trying to make sure you're looking at it. What's the second concept? And what's, well, before we get to the second concept, what is significant about that concept? If he subjected it to vanity without the will of the creature, that demonstrates God doing what? Doing what he wants, not in regards to the will of creation. What is the second thing that we saw? All right, yeah, there are ultimately three concepts, but so thank you for mentioning that one. The second one is he did it in hope. Why is that significant? If he could subject it in vanity and hope, then that means he knew he was going to work everything out, that this vanity would ultimately end in a hopeful kind of way. All right, and then third, verse 28, he works all things according to good, to those who are called according to God's purpose. You get the idea. All right, now why significant about that? Well, if God's working uh, all things out together for good, then what, what does that require? Him to be in charge of what? Pretty much all things. 
All right? And this led to what doctrine? No, God's providence. God's providence, all right? So that we backed up to look at God's providence. Why did we back up to look at God's providence? Because if we can establish this concept, when we get to the six words, are they even controversial? No, then what do we just need to do? What do the words mean? And then just really move through it. Like, in fact, we should be able to get through the six words relatively quick because we're already going to be eliminating a lot of the controversy. So looking at God's providence, is it controversial? Yes, it is, uh, depending on how, how deep you want to go into it. A lot of people don't want to go that deep, but we are. So what did we, what, what did we define? How did we define God's providence? We may define God's providence as follows. We use Grudem's uh, definition. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he does what? Keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created thing in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Number three, directs them to fulfill his purpose. And under the general category of providence, we have three subtopics, which are preservation, concurrence, and government. All right. We talked about preservation, did we not? All right. We're not going to go back through that again. Then we talked about concurrence, did we not? And when we talked about concurrence, we looked in a couple of areas. Which were those areas? Inanimate creation. Right? Animals. Seemingly random or chance events. Next. Events fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well. Right? And then next. The affairs of nations. And then last week, what did we focus on? All aspect of our lives, which was extremely controversial. Was it not? Yes? All right. And now, this brings us to today's not pleasant topic. All right. Are you ready? All right, now I'm not going to go back and review everything that we talked about last week. It's there. Are you ready for the next one? All right, what do you think he's going to talk about next? Now, what, what's, the, what's the general heading that we're looking at? Concurrence, right? Yes? Okay. All right, here we go. I'm just going to mention it. I, I, I could come up with some clever way to introduce this, but I'm just going to jump in. Evil. We have to deal with the subject of evil. All right? Now, when we talk about the subject of evil, we've already talked about all aspects of our lives, correct? When we talk about the subject of evil, what's the first thing we need to establish? Probably what's the first thing we need to establish in regards to the subject of evil? Okay, well, let, let's start with this. We can all acknowledge evil exists, Yes? All right, we all acknowledge evil exists. Let's start with the existence of evil we can all acknowledge. Now, what is required, now here's the, here's the philosophical question of the day, what is required to be able to say evil exists? It's going to require more than an observation. Do I? A moral standard. You gotta have a moral standard, right? Because three people could observe the exact same situation. In other words, when if we go and I, I know it's always the go-to example because but everyone the reason we go to this example as pastors and, and people in philosophy is because at least everyone there's some kind of agreement. If you go back to what happened in Nazi Germany, when they were rounding up Jews and exterminating them, 
Almost everyone acknowledges that that was what? Evil. But the people rounding them up, did they perceive it as evil? No. So observation is not enough. Right? Correct? Uh, we, you can look back in history at things that happened in the United States of America, right? Hey, the indigenous people who lived here before we and taking their land, killing them, placing them on reservations. Good or bad? Okay, I, I would argue bad. But at the time, what was the observation? Was it good? Hey, and we can go on out. We can go slavery. We can go, we can just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So, how do you determine something is evil? Well, we all agree that evil exists. The question is, you've got to have some standard in which you look at something and say, that is wrong. Now, we live in a culture where everyone, you know, is all over social media going, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, stop this, silence this, stop. But the, nobody ever bothers to ask, how are you determining that that action is bad or evil? are wrong. You have to have a standard in which to do so. It drives young people crazy when you ask that question. Look, when people want to run around and say, hey, we need to stop this, we need to stop that, I don't, ar- I don't immediately argue with them about whether what they're wanting to stop is right or wrong. I'm like, okay, that's great. You want to stop it. Now, what makes that action wrong? Well, I think it's wrong. Well, what if I don't think it's wrong? Am I wrong for not thinking it's wrong? Well, yeah, you're wrong. But why am I wrong for not thinking it's wrong? Because you've yet established what system we're using to make something wrong. So to say that something is evil, you first have to have some kind of standard by which you judge everything. And what's your options for having a standard in which to judge something as being good or evil? What are your options? Let's go through them again. We should, everyone in this church should have this down like it's clockwork, right? I mean, everybody should know. What are your, op- what are your options to have a standard to, to say something is evil? Let's go through them. I can hear my wife saying, you talk about this all the time. Why are you talking about it again? Okay. What are they? All right. Okay. First would be the majority determines what's right and wrong. I know what you mean. The majority uh, determines what's right and wrong. Now, does that work? (laughs) Sometimes. But if you go through history, there's plenty of situations where the majority argued for something that the minority argued against. So was the majority right or was the minority right? Well, it depends on the situation, right? So in other words, if a majority of people determine that blonde-haired kids should be eliminated from the face of the earth, with, with that, I, I, I had to pick on Levi because he was just crawled on the floor. Okay. Right. Would, would that, who, would, if the majority says it's right, then it would be by definition Right. So nobody likes, everybody thinks they like the majority idea until the majority idea promotes something they don't. There was a time that majority of people thought it was acceptable to buy and sell human beings as property. Correct? And it was a minority who ultimately fought against it. All right, so nobody likes the majority idea. What's the second idea? The minority idea, all right? Now, does everybody like the minority idea? Well, you do. Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, right? Because right, who's in the minority now? The KKK is in the minority now. So are they right? Because they're in the minority? I would hope everyone here would say, no, okay, right? So the minority idea doesn't work. So the majority idea doesn't work. What's the third option? Oh, the third one is where we are in 2021. 
All the young people should know this one because this is the way young people think today. Don't say social media, okay, right? Don't say TikTok, okay? Self! I determine what's right and I determine what's wrong. Now, does that work really well? Well, it could, but here's the problem. When, that, when you're a young person, right, who decides mom and dad, Christianity is wrong, and this is right, and this is wrong, and they get to determine right and wrong, what always comes with them telling you what's right and what's wrong? They take their morality, and they want to oppose it where? On telling you what's right and what's wrong, right? If I've got someone here in the church who says, you know what, Hitler didn't go far enough. Hitler should get rid of even more people. We should bring Hitler back. And you're like, well, that's their view. Well, you disagree with their view. Well, if, 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 if each individual gets determined right and wrong, can you tell the person who wants to bring Hitler back that they're wrong? No, because they get to determine morality. Nobody likes that idea. Right? So, majority doesn't work. Minority doesn't work. Self doesn't work. So, what's your next option? Oh, transcendent morality that is outside the majority, outside the minority, and outside of self. Then once you have that, then you can call something what? You look at that objective standard and you say, that's evil, that's evil, that's evil, that's evil. We argue that the transcendent objective standard is whom? God. All right. So, let's just make sure we understand, first of all, evil exists. And second, for evil to exist, you have to have a transcendent moral standard in which to define it. Let's just get that out of the way, all right? That's just basic stuff, all right? Everybody got that? Now, what, once you say evil exists, now what's the next major philosophical problem you have? Well, if you have an objective moral standard that you call God, and God exists, then why does evil exist? Right? Because what would be the argument? If God is the objective moral standard, that means he is good. And if he is good, why would God therefore allow evil to exist? Do you see the philosophical problem? Now, this comes into play where? With providence, with foreknowledge, sovereignty, and all of this. Let's see how Grudem handles this problem. All right? Everybody ready? Okay? Now, uh, well, let's do this. Let's, let's ask another question. All right? Evil exists. Everyone agree that it exists? Right? Now, we believe it exists because we believe... It. Now, you, if you ask any person on the street, for the most part, everyone believes evil exists. They just don't have a basic standard for doing so. But let me ask a question. If evil exists, and God exists, what are some possible explanations to why evil exists? Well, let's think about this, all right? Well, let's do this. What could God do with evil? First, he could have done what? prevented it from ever showing up. Now, what people say, well, no, he couldn't have done that because then he would have taken away people's free will. But he could allow them to exercise their free will and as soon as they sinned, he could have then done what? Destroyed everything and then therefore stop it from spreading, right? So either God could have stopped it, but he didn't, which would imply what? That somehow he's got a purpose in it or you have to imply that God can't stop it, which is problematic, correct? Or you have to imply that God doesn't exist, and if God doesn't exist, then you have no standard in which to call something 
evil. You see how this becomes a major circular problem. All right, let's see what Grudem has to do. There's more we could go there, but I, I stopped myself from going too far uh, with this. All right, let me look at the, make sure nobody's asking any questions here. All right. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? This is Grudem. What about evil? If God does indeed cause, through his providential activity, everything that comes about in the world, then a question arises. Right? Remember what we talked about in the previous one? Who brings about everything? God. Who works everything out according to his purpose and his goodwill? God. So if God's working in everything and bringing everything about, then when the question arises, this is the question. You ready? What is the relationship between God and evil in the world? What is the relationship between God and evil in the world? You may want to write that question down. What is God's relationship to it? All right? I just got you, have your thinking caps on, all right? We're just got, I, I want to, I each, like, for every sentence here, I could stop and preach for three hours, but I'm going to try, I'm going to try to stop myself from doing that, all right? Here we go. What is the relationship, here's another question, or, or say, or no, what is the relationship between God and evil in the world? And the next question, does God actually cause the evil actions that people do? If he does, then is God not responsible for sin? So what are some of the questions? What is the relationship between God and evil in the world? Does God actually cause the evil actions that people do? And if he does, is God not responsible for sin? Those are some heavy questions. Does anybody like these questions? I don't like these questions. I don't think anybody likes these questions. But you see why we have to talk about these questions prior to? The six, the six words? If we're going to talk about predestination, foreknowledge, election, we got to get into these situations. And not only that, even if you're not looking at those six words, you, every Christian should go, wait a minute, there's a God and there's evil in the world. How do, I, how do I wrap my mind around these two things existing at the same time? Atheists argue, because there's evil in the world, therefore God can't exist. That's the atheist argument. Right? Well, how do we, how do we reconcile it? How do we deal with this? All right? Let's go through this. In approaching this question, it is best first to read the passages of Scripture that most directly addresses it. We can begin by looking at several passages that affirm that God did indeed cause evil events to come about and evil deeds to be done. Whoa, now not everyone would agree with what Grudem just said. He just argued that there are passages of Scripture that affirms what? Let me read it again. All right. In approaching this question, it is best first to read the passages of Scripture that most directly address it. We can begin by looking at several passages that affirm that God did, indeed, cause evil events to come about, and evil deeds to be done. Now, right there, a lot of people would just burn Grudem's book right there. Okay? So, guess what we're going to have to determine? One, we have to determine what the passages he's going to offer up are, and then what do we have to determine? 
What do they mean? Do they, uh, do they agree with him or disagree with him? Remember, when you're reading a systematic theology, what are they pr- putting forth? I just talked about this in, in hour one. Putting forth a thesis and that they attempt to prove it. Your job is to sit back and go, okay, what's the thesis they're trying to prove? And then do they prove it? And then you can try to argue against it. You have to, a systematic theology is to be engaged, not to be read. It's to be, it's to be struggled with. If you just read a systematic theology, you're not doing it correctly, right? You got to stop on every page and go, okay, what's going on here? So what's his thesis at this point? That scripture affirms what? Let me read the statement again. You may want to write down the statement verbatim so that you have it, okay? All right, because this is important. In approaching this question, it's best first to read the passages of Scripture that most directly addresses it. We can begin by looking at several passages that affirm that God did indeed cause evil events to come about and evil deeds to be done. What's his thesis? That there are Scriptures... That affirm that God did what two things? Right. I'll read, it. I'll, I'll read it one more time. Just make sure everybody has it. That God did indeed cause evil events to come about and evil deeds to be done. So, according to him, that there are scriptures that affirm that God did what two things? Cause evil events... And evil deeds to be done. So everybody got that? Amen? Okay, I'm going to assume that you do. All right. But we must remember that in all these passages, it is very clear that Scripture nowhere shows God directly doing anything evil, but rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Oh, this is a hard line to try to follow. So he brings it about, but Scripture wouldn't say God is somehow guilty. The who is guilty? The moral creatures who engage in the act. How do you work these two concepts out? I do not know. All right. Now, so what? What do we need? What you should be saying? What? What? What should we need? What do we need to do? We need to see the Scriptures correctly. All right. Now listen, he goes, he makes another step, he goes a step further. Are you ready? Scripture never blames God for evil or shows God is taking pleasure in evil and Scripture never excuses human beings for the wrong they do. However, we understand God's relationship to evil. We must never come to the point where we think that, that, that we are not responsible for the evil that we do or that God takes pleasure in evil or is to be blamed for it. Such conclusions is clearly contrary to Scripture. That's a hard thing to balance all of that, correct? So we're responsible. God may bring it about, but he's not guilty of doing it, and he doesn't take pleasure in it. Wow, that's a lot to try to process. That's a lot to try to process. Okay? Now this is this is now this is important, right? When we talk about evil, when we talk about we'll, we'll use another word. Let's just put the word sin. When we talk about sin, as in your brain, when you talk about sin, there's there's two kinds of sins that you have to think about, right? The sins committed by others and the sins committed by yourself. Right? 
Which ones are you the quickest to excuse? Which are the ones are you quickest to condemn? Others. We, are, that, we all do that, correct? Right? Right? And, I, and I, if, you, you, if you look on the internet, this quote is all over the internet, um, and it's by me. It's, it's weird seeing myself like, you know, a quote, and it has Trevor Hamlet on it. I'm like, hey, that's me. How, how, how did that end up on these quote sites? I don't know. But uh, a famous quote, I said it a long time ago, and I don't remember the exact words. I'd have to look it up, how I even said it, because it was said in a sermon. But I, I always argue that humility is the impossible task of being more concerned with your sin than the sin of others. Right? That's true humility. When you're more concerned with your sin than anybody else. When you see your sin as being worse than anybody else's. Right? But we have a tendency to do what? Yeah, we, we, we're more worried and we, how, are we more condemning of our sin or someone else's sin? And where, where are we the most condemning? Okay, when their sin impacts us, oh, then we really get mad, do we not? Do we not really get upset? Yes, okay. So, immediately we realize that we have our own relationship with sin and evil is already questionable enough. And then when we bring God in, it's a, it's a mess. Yeah, then, it, then, then, then we have to figure out how God... It really is on the I know it's on the yeah, I wouldn't make it up. I didn't make it up. Okay. You think I was lying? Okay. You're, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who would, who would want anything my pastor would say? Okay. I see how it is. She's like, I can't believe that my, he would, any quote of his would show up anywhere on the internet. Okay. Yeah. And now, now you know why your friends think your mom's mean. Okay. Now I see. All right. All right. Okay. There you go. All right. So, all right. Everybody ready? So we got to deal with this. All right. Here we go. Right, because this is this is, we're going to try to have as much fun as we can dealing with a very 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 difficult uh, t- uh, subject. All right. Um, however, we understand God's relationship to evil. We must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for that evil we do, or that God takes pleasure in evil or is to be blamed for it. Such conclusion is clearly contrary to Scripture. Now. There are literally dozens of scripture passages that say God indirectly brought about some kind of evil. I have quoted such an extensive list in the next few paragraphs because Christians are often unaware of the extent of the forthright teaching in scripture, yet it must be remembered that in all of these examples, the evil is actually done not by God, but by the people or demons who choose to do it. Now, that's really hard to wrap your mind around. God somehow brings it about, but it's the people who do it. How you reconcile this too is very hard. But he's going to go through a lot of scriptures. So this is going to be one of those, uh, for the next, it's probably going to take us two weeks. It's going to be tedious. But we have to get this out of the way. Does everybody understand? I know there's a part of you going, just get to the six words. But if I can't get to the six words unless we deal with these kinds of problems. Because when you start dealing with predestination and election, you get into a lot of these questions, right? So we're going to have to, especially when you get further into Romans, when you talk about God will have mercy in whom? And he will harden? Oh, boy. And about instruments created for destruction. Oh, boy. We're going to get into some serious stuff. So we've got to get this out of the way now um, because if we don't, then, then and then when people get upset like a six months from now, I can just say, 
Go back and listen to what I did six months ago, all right? And I don't have to redo it all again. All right, here we go. You ready? A very clear example is found in the story of Joseph. Scriptures clearly says that Joseph's brothers were wrongly jealous of him, hated him, and wanted to kill him, and did wrong when they cast him into the pit, and then sold him into slavery in Egypt. Would we agree with all of that? Would we agree with all of that? Would we agree that the Bible... Well, let's look at some of the scriptures. All right, we, because now, now I've got to... Mm, we got to be careful here. Go to Genesis 37. All right. Here's, here's a, a practical lesson. Everybody listen to the practical lesson. All right. Practical lesson. Thinking caps on. All right. Here's an application for, you, for your uh, study for this morning. Okay. Everybody ready? Whenever you read a Christian book, you read a Bible dictionary, you read a systematic theology... Or you read a commentary. A lot of times they will say, in this scripture, and then they will tell you what the scripture supposedly says or does, right? They will give you the scripture reference. Now in your brain, it's very easy for you to do this. In your brain, you read, okay, uh, in, in Genesis 37, this is what, it ha- what happens. You almost never stop and do what? Go check it out. So then what becomes your built-in interpretation from that point on? What they just told you happened in the verse. You got to be careful with that, okay? So let's go back and and, and see what he says these scriptures are doing, all right? And then we'll we'll just, we'll find out if this is true or not, okay? So, because I was just going to skip over this, but this is a very important lesson, all right? A very clear example is found in the story of Joseph. Scripture, now listen what he says here, everybody listening? Scripture clearly says that Joseph's brothers were wrongly jealous of him. Look at Genesis 37, 11. Genesis 37, 11. What does the verse actually say? Remember, what did Grudem say it, that it demonstrates? They were wrongly jealous. All right, so does, does, the text, does the text make a moral judgment? It's st- Remember, what, what are we reading in Genesis? I'm gonna, we're going to argue historical narrative. I know some people try to argue parts of Genesis is, is poetical, but we're going to say that's a historical narrative here, right? And what does a historical narrative attempt to do? Right. Gives a description of what happened. It does not always make a moral judgment. This is very important because when you read a lot of times in the Old Testament and it says so-and-so did something, what we ought to always impose what? A moral judgment upon it, correct? The text sometimes doesn't, call, doesn't state a moral judgment. It just states what happened and then your job is to then sometimes figure that out. I just want to make sure. He says that the, that the scriptures here did what? Let me read it again. He claimed that the scriptures... 
Now he says a very clear example is found in the story of Joseph. Scripture clearly states that Joseph's brothers were wrongly jealous of him. I'm not saying that they weren't wrong. I'm just saying that the text there does not make a moral judgment. It just says that the brothers did what? Envied him. Agreed? Yes? Now let me ask a question. At this point in Genesis, has there been a law against envy laid down? All right, now remember that comes into how do we interpret a lot of parts of Genesis? Do we interpret them with a law that had not been written yet? Right? Okay, but just, just explaining what happened, all right? Envy. Now, he, okay. Okay. Right, there, he's getting ready to mention that one next. He, he separates the envy from the hate, right? But let me, let me read, right, because this is very important, right? Um, and thanks for pointing that out. It says here, so let me go back to find where the story, where he starts this. Okay, a very clear example is found in the story of Joseph. Scripture clearly states that Joseph's brothers were wrongly jealous of him. Next, hated him. Genesis 37, 4, 5, and 8. So look at verse 4. And when his brethren saw that the father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it his brother and they hated him yet the more. And then I believe it's verse 8. And his brethren said uh, to him, Shall thou indeed reign over us, or shall thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Now, what I just simply want to point out, there's no question the text says that they envied him and hated him. I'm just arguing that the text does not make a moral judgment on the action. That's all I'm saying. Agreed? We read it, we place the moral judgment upon it. Yes? Does everybody understand what I'm trying to do? I'm just trying to make you learn to catch that kind of thing because, what, again, what did Grudem say here? That the text did what? Clearly says that Joseph's brothers were wrongly jealous of him and right next to that hated him. So he's, he's making the argument that the scriptures clearly state that it was wrong for them to envy him and wrong for them to hate him. I'm just demonstrating Genesis just states the fact. It doesn't say that it was wrong or right. It just states the fact. All right. Genesis 37 20 tells us what? Yeah, basically they want to throw him into a pit to kill him, right? Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, right? Or kill him, right? They wanted to kill him, right? And now look at uh, Genesis 37, 24. What do they do in uh, 37, 24? They cast him to a pit. Now please, now look at how Grudem writes it. Are you ready? And they did wrong when they cast him into the pit. Again, I'm not saying that it was right. I'm just arguing that the, the text does not place the moral judgment on it. Does that make sense? Okay. Next. Um, and then they sold him into slavery, Genesis 37, 28. Is that correct? Now, are you ready? So you've got all of those scriptures, right? What do we have? Joseph's brothers do the following things. They're envious. They hate him. They wanted to kill him. And they threw him into a pit, and they sold him into slavery. Can we all agree that all of those things occurred? Yes. Would we agree that from our moral perspective, all of those things were 
wrong. And who's responsible for doing all of those things? The brothers. Look at Genesis 45, 5. Genesis 45, 5. Genesis 45, 5. What do you find there? All right, so according to Joseph, who ultimately sent him there? God. Well, wait a minute. From the human perspective, who sent them there? His brother's actions. So this would demonstrate that God ultimately was doing what? Working in and through the actions. Now, here's the thing. Do you blame God for the actions or do you blame them for the actions? Who gets blamed for the actions? The brothers. But even though those evil actions were going on, who was working through and above those actions? God. Now you see where this is problematic. In a philosophy classroom, they're going to be like, well, then God was responsible. Well, God is responsible in some way. Did he know that they were going to do what they did? Could he have stopped what they were going to do? Did he not stop it? All right, good job. You got them all right. Okay. All right. But he didn't stop anything. But, yeah, but they didn't. But he worked it through it all. So here's the hard thing for us to, to reconcile. Evil occurs, and even though evil occurs, on one hand, you can't remove God's responsibility in it, right? Because God, has God intervened in other situations in Genesis up to this point? Big time, right? I mean, intervening and flooding the whole world is a pretty big intervention, yes? How about when uh, Sarah, when Abraham came up with a great idea to tell everyone that Sarah wasn't his wife? Did God intervene to stop something bad from happening? Yes. Yeah, he did intervene, right? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, did God intervene? So he's been intervening all throughout the book. You see, when you read this from just, just like, like a normal reading the story, like from a human perspective, now I, whenever I describe this, people get upset at me and say I'm being sacrilegious, but I'm just saying when I read the story and I get to this part, I'm like, where's God? He's been jumping in all over the place, right? Has he not been jumping in all throughout the book of Genesis? Everyone should say amen. He's all over the place, correct? And then all of a sudden, Joseph, we believe who gave him the dream? Do we believe that was a God-given dream to Joseph? All right, so God gives him the dream. He goes out, hey, guys, I have this dream. Let's get rid of him. And so if you're reading it from a human perspective, what are you waiting for? Where's God? Does God step in at any point? From the story... No, he goes from one, one, one situation, every situation he goes to, he, he tells the dream, and, it, and what happens? It goes from bad to worse to worse. Right, and, and every time, sometimes there's like a couple of things that look pretty good, right? Oh, look. He, he, look, everything's great now. He's in this nice house, and everything's, and next thing you know, he's being accused of a crime. And then he ends up where? In prison, and then the people are going to get out and, and let everyone know, and they forget that he's there. Finally, he gets out. So from a human perspective, you're like, God abandoned Joseph. He left him there. So guess what you have in the story? Do you have the actions of human beings? 
Yes. Are those actions deplorable and evil? Yes. Who's responsible for those actions? The people. However, what do we see over and working in and through all of it? God. In fact, how did Joseph see it all? I mean, read that text again. Genesis 45.5. Read it again. Genesis 45.5. I want you to circle this one. I want you to write this down. Now, therefore, be not grieved. Hey, God, not, be not. Who is he telling not to be grieved? The brothers who did it all. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> right? The brothers doing it all. It'd be like Eli wakes up one day and his sister's like, hey, that, you know, that's it. We're going to beat up our brother and we're going to sell him. And, and the, the goodlets come over like, where, where, where's Eli? And the girls are just like, we don't know. We haven't seen him. Like, but we got a lot of money we would like to spend at the store. Where would you get the money? We don't know. And they, nobody knows where Eli is. And he gets sold. Well, 25 years later, everybody finds Eli. And he's like, hey, girls, don't be upset. Don't be grieved. Don't be mad. Because God sent me here. Now, he probably would say, oh, oh, there you are. I've been waiting 25 years to meet you again, Okay. Okay? I'm now in charge. Guess what happens to my sisters? Off to prison! I, I, that's, what I don't, that's what I would do. Right? What Joseph... What, I can't, read, read the text. Read it. It's, an, it's like, I'm just, wait, like... If you were reading a fictional novel, you'd be like, that's not real. Right? I mean, what does he say? Read it again. I want everyone to read it. Like 50 times. Now therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves. Hey, don't be too hard on yourselves. Hey, this is Eli telling his sisters, don't be too hard. I mean, you know, you needed a new PlayStation. I mean, of course it makes sense that you sold me. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It'd be like my, my father was sold for $25 and a case of beer. Right? That's pretty messed up, huh? That's pretty messed up. But later on, hey, don't, don't worry about it. Don't be too hard on yourselves. That, that's, but what does he say? That you sold me hither. All right, now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. He doesn't deny that they... Who does he say sold them? But then what does he say? For God did send me before you to preserve life. That is... Try to wrap your mind around that. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't you. It was God. They sold him. But God sent him. So, wrap your mind around this. All right. People did evil. People did wrong. Their actions are real. But at the same time, God was operating in and through them. Now, what does this teach you about your life? Let's just stop right here before we even go further into this. What does this teach you about your life? And it is hard to see this. I'm not, look, I'm not saying that this is easy, but I'm just saying from a, from a biblical perspective, how, how, how should you then view life? You don't look at it from an earthly perspective. 
You look at above the early earthly perspective. You're like, okay, these horrible things happened, but what? Do you deny the evil the people did? By no means you deny the evil that someone did. But somehow you know that God is doing what? In and through it, working something. Is it going to make sense? I mean, look, so, look. in Joseph's case, he understood God sent him. Why? Why? How he understood this? We may not know, but he understood it. Who was never given any explanation? Job. You never, you've got to always put those two stories together. Maybe you'll end, because in most cases, we don't end, Joseph seemed to, either he just acknowledged that God, he knew God was working, whether it was actually revealed to him, or he, that's just the way we should see it. No matter what happens in our life, God is doing what? He's working in it and for it. So what, how, what can we do? No matter how bad the situation is, no matter the evil people do against us, we simply focus on what? What is my responsibility before God and what should I do? If, I'm, if, if evil puts me here, what do I do in this situation? I, 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 I seek to serve God, glorify God, and do what's right. Yes? And how can God use me? Evil may have put you there, but what are you going to do now that evil puts you there? Correct? Does that make sense? That's hard to wrap up because that one verse has what, what two elements are in that one verse in Genesis 45.5? What two elements are there? Or, or three elements. The existence of evil, right? The, the, response, the actions of people and the sovereignty of God. Do you see all three elements? Right? Does he acknowledge that they sold him? Hey, don't be angry at yourself, right? And it's, it's funny because he doesn't, you know, sometimes you would say, well, I'm not going to mention what you did, right? I'm not going to mention what you did, but he, he, he mentions it, right? Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. He doesn't deny the fact that they did it. For God did send me before to preserve life. All right? Verse 8, so now, as, as uh, Sarah pointed out, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but God, and he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. You did this, but God sent me. God sent me. That is a, do you see how amazing that is? All the elements are there. All the elements are there. Now, does that make it easier to understand? I don't know if it makes it easier to understand, but I think it makes it very convicting, all right? Let's see what else he has to say here, all right? So, a very clear example is found in the story of Joseph. Scripture clearly states that Joseph's brothers were wrong, wrongly jealous of him, hated him, wanted to kill him, and did wrong when they cast him into a pit. And then sold him into slavery. Yet later, Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve life, and you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Look at Genesis 50, verse 20. Everybody see Genesis 50, verse 20? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. 
Yeah, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. That one is even, that's even more mind boggling, right? Hey, your, your actions were meant for evil, but God used your evil actions against me for good. All things work together for good. So what did that ultimately demonstrate? What does that verse demonstrate in Genesis 50? That God overrode whose actions? He, rode, he overrode the actions of the brothers, right? They meant it for evil. Hey, and what did God do with them? Made it good. He overrode their actions. They wanted to do something. So did he worry about their will? Well, in one sense, he let their will carry it out, but he just overrode their will to use their will to do what? Bring about the good. Did he have to do it that way? I think he probably could have got Joseph to Egypt in a lot far different way. Could we all, could we all agree, right? There was probably an easier way. Like, he gave him a dream. Could he give him a dream that said, pack up and go to Egypt? <laughs> right? Correct? Right? But he didn't do that. Now, our question would be, well, why didn't he do it that way? He didn't have to let a famine occur. Very good point. He could have avoided the entire situation completely. To what? It would have saved the Egypt issue. But we had already told, I think, what he told Abram. Yeah. Your ancestors are going to be in captivity, right? So he had already knew it was all going to happen. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let me read this last part and then we'll stop. All right. This is very, I mean, it's a powerful statement. Here we have a combination of evil deeds brought about by sinful men who are rightly held accountable for their sin and the overriding providential control of God whereby God's own purposes were accomplished. Both are clearly affirmed. All right. So th- both, both concepts are clearly taught right there. Both concepts are brought together. So let's try to wrap it up this way, all right? because I think it's very important. And when we deal with the idea of God's providential control or God's providence, we can acknowledge it from the following perspectives, all right? We've seen, in fact, if you go back to our our discussion from Grudem's Systematic Theology, in fact, let's just go back and look at all all of the phrases so that we'll at least have them, all right? We'll go through each one, all right? When we define God's providence, we defined it using the, how many points? Three points, right? Hang on, let me... My page just skipped all my notes really quick. All right, give me one second. All right, here we go. We define God's providence this way. All right. Uh, we, de- we define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill whose purpose? His purpose. All right? And then under this category, we had three things. Preservation, concurrence, and government. Everybody remember those? Right? We talked about preservation. We talked about concurrence. And then under concurrence, we talked about inanimate creation, Animals, seemingly random or chance events, events fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well, the affairs of nations, 
all aspects of our lives. And then today we spent the whole hour looking at which concept? About evil. All right? And then what we discussed about evil is this concept of God's sovereignty working in and above through all things. And we ultimately brought it all together in looking at the life of Joseph. And the life of Joseph, do we have evil actions carried out by his brothers? Yes. Those evil actions are acknowledged by Joseph himself. Yes? You sold me. You did this. But he acknowledged that who ultimately is the one who sent him forward? God. So both are acknowledged. The evil was done. The brothers are blamed for it. But Joseph says, hey guys, don't feel bad. Don't blame yourself. God is the one who ultimately sent sent me here. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Now, that brings in God's providence here. Now, let's take some practical lessons from all of this. Are you ready? We'll summarize with some practical lessons. Number one, as a Christian, it is our, how can I state this, never-ending task to try to perceive life from the perspective of God's providence and God's sovereignty and not from our limited earthly perspective. Now, that's easy to say, right? That's easy to say, right? I can sit here and preach this all day, and when I get in my car and I drive home, if I walk into my house and all of my stuff is stolen, and all my, everything's ripped, you know, people have broken into my house, I doubt I'm going to sit there and go, well, you know, whoo God's providence, he's got a purpose in all of this, and he's, if someone meant it, meant it for evil, but God's going to ultimately work this for good, now it's going to be very hard to practice what I just preached, But that's the struggle, to see that. We don't see that. Joseph had the ability to go, look, guys, you you did all of these evil things to me, but God put me here. God worked it out. You meant it for evil. God overrode your actions for good. Now, we've already established God could have... God could have done it a million different ways. He could have kept the famine from occurring. He could have got Joseph to Egypt a hundred different ways. But that's, that's the thing that we're, we're, we are not given information about. God does it his way. We don't have to like the way, right? I doubt Joseph would have preferred, hey, I, you know, hey, I've got a great way to save everyone. Have my brothers treat me really bad, sell me into slavery, and I end up in prison being falsely accused and then forgotten in prison. That, this is a great plan, God. From our perspective, does it look like a great plan? No. But how do we have to see it? God's working through it. I, there is no, I can't give you like a little magical pill that's like every time bad happens, you're like, well, pastor, don't worry about it. God's got a plan for it. Now, you may say that. Never say it if you don't mean it. Say what you mean. Because sometimes you just need to acknowledge, did Job uh, always see it that way? He had some very strong words about, you know, God, I wish I was never born. Sometimes you got to be honest. Pretending it doesn't, it doesn't work. But you have to struggle with trying to see it from that perspective. Seeing that God is overriding everything for his purpose and his plan. Not your purpose and your plan, but his purpose and his plan. Right? Does that make sense? That's very important. So the first principle is we have to work to see life from that perspective. Right? I cannot, I cannot emphasize that enough. Number two. It should humble us to realize that God is ultimately the one working all things according to his purpose and his will. 
In fact, in Romans 8, we've already talked about what did he do to all of creation? He subjected it to vanity. Not according to the will of the creature. God subjected all of creation to vanity. For what purpose? He subjected it in hope. Right? So before we even get to these six words in Romans 8 that everyone gets all controversial about, you know, upset about, the controversy really starts earlier on. So I just want you to see this. We need to see life from the perspective of God's providence and not from an earthly perspective. And number two, we have to be humbled by it. Because I'm telling you, I, look, everyone sitting in this room, I, mean, I know we're missing people, but people, if everyone was here, everyone in this room has things that's happened in our life that did not go the way we wanted it to go, right? Horrible situations that people can tell stories about. But God ultimately works it for his purpose and his counsel and his will. So our job is to accept his purpose and his will and to glorify him even when it goes against what we want. I mean, I doubt Joseph would have wanted his life spent the way it was. But it's amazing the way he handles that at the end. All right, so we'll have to stop right there because we've already been over an hour. Let's make sure that no one on the internet is uh, having any questions here. Give me one second. All right, no, no questions. All right, so let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for having the opportunity to discuss such a very important topic in systematic theology. It's a difficult one, Lord, that we, we will be working on for the next couple of months, but let us struggle with it. Let us not give up or get discouraged, and let's continue through all of these concepts so that when we get back into Romans 8, we'll be prepared to handle these very important six words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...